You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So when I was in my early 20s, I was part of a Christian hardcore band with my brothers and some friends from church. For those of you who don't know what hardcore is, well, there's different definitions of what hardcore is, but I'm talking about the music genre. Get your mind out of the gutter. Um, This is like rap rock, you know, like Rage Against the Machine. It was really big in the 90s. Still around now, you know. I think Rage Against the Machine is still touring. And um, actually, Rage Against the Machine was really influential on us at that time. This is like in the late 90s, which is kind of funny when you think about it, because we were these white suburban, you know, Christian kids. And Rage Against the Machine is this far left band that sings about, you know, anti-white supremacy, you know, uh, Native American rights, they're anti-Christian, anti-capitalist, pretty much anti-everything we were, but we love them because we like their music style and I'm confident we didn't really understand the lyrics. But we like their music style, we like the, the, the hardcore genre because the angry music style matched our angry message, which was basically, wake up Christians, you know, get pure, get right with the Lord, start taking your faith seriously. Stop being so complacent. And um, at the end of uh, every show, the band name was Human Industry. <laughs> at the end of uh, every show that Human Industry played in various coffee shops and Christian venues around the Chicagoland area, I would get up from behind the drums, I was the drummer, and I'd go to the front of the stage and grab the mic and proceed to deliver this impromptu very intense and angry sermon where I would literally pace the stage and rant and rave about how Christians, you Christians just aren't Christian enough. You're not taking your faith seriously. You're not living for the Lord. You're complacent. You need to wake up. That's, you know, I cringe now when I think about, you know, doing that and who I was. But here's the thing that I've come to realize in some ways, I'm not so different than that 22 year old kid. I mean, obviously my beliefs and my message and my style has changed. I'm not up here yelling and pacing and ranting and raving. Um, But, you know, preaching is still what I do. Back then I was a passionate fundamentalist trying to get Christians to be more conservative. Now I'm a passionate ex-fundamentalists, calling Christians to be ex-fundamentalists, right? Which in a way is kind of similar because I'm still calling Christians to, quote, be more Christian, you know, be more Christ-like. It seems I've always needed to preach this one way or another. It seems I've always needed to preach something. I guess it's true what they say. You can take the boy out of evangelicalism, but you can't take the evangelicalism completely out of the boy. Preaching, calling people to conversion, spiritual awakening, that's kind of evangelical, is it not? The word evangelical means to evangelize. I'm still doing that. 
And this kind of bothers me sometimes, sometimes more than others, but it kind of bothers me still for a few reasons, not the least of which is it makes me wonder if I've just gone from one extreme to the other, you know? Um, but I don't think so, because I think the other extreme from where I was would be to be a, you know, just to completely leave church and this Christianity thing behind, become a, a rigid atheist and an outspoken one at that, right? Not that there's anything wrong with atheism per se in this church, we say that, you know? But, you know, there's this kind of atheism that's a lot, it's a mirror of religious fundamentalism where the goal is to, you know, preach this kind of rigidity and try to convert others and everybody's dumb who isn't an atheist, that kind of, that would be the, the true opposite, the other extreme from where I was. What I'm saying is there's always a danger, always a danger in deconstruction of overreacting, going from one extreme to the other and simply exchanging one set of rigid beliefs for another without changing the way that we relate to our beliefs, which is actually the point which is what we need to do. Being reactionary is ironically sometimes a way of still being tied to and oppressed by the very thing we are reacting against. Being reactionary can not only be all-consuming and exhausting, but it can also turn us into a mirror image of what we're reacting against and fighting against. I believe it was Nietzsche who once said, be careful when fighting monsters that you don't become a monster yourself. Which is to say that if we allow our unhealed wounds and trauma to turn us into a hurtful and angry person, are we really free? Are we really free from what we're fighting against, from who we used to be or whatever? Are we not still oppressed and controlled by it? Voluntarily so. Either. But what's helped me not go that way is understanding that the goal of deconstruction is not simply to exchange one set of beliefs for another, but to change the way that we relate to our beliefs, whatever they are, atheist, theist, progressive, conservative, etc., some describe this difference as the difference between a level one change and a level two change. And I've talked about this before, but I'll be brief. A level one change is simply exchanging one set of beliefs for another without changing the way that we relate to our beliefs. <clears throat> what a level two change is. Level two change happens when you no longer relate to your beliefs in an unhealthy and rigid way, whatever they are, atheist, theist, progressive, conservative, whatever. Meaning you no longer fetishize and idolize your beliefs and hold on to them with, you know, like this, like strong certainty and see them as the thing that's going to make you whole and complete or give you the answers. We so want to feel that way as human beings. We so want to feel 
whole and complete and like we have the answers and others don't that that we're in the know because that's comforting that's powerful we so want to feel that way that any rigid belief system atheism theism or something in between doesn't matter anything can become a way of achieving that but the the fact is we don't have the answers and we are immersed in utter mystery and unknowing certainty is always a lie we don't have the answers and certainty is always a lie we are all immersed in mystery and unknowing about life's deepest questions and we need to accept that in order to approach life in the healthiest way another way to say this is to say that we need to undergo what the 20th century french philosopher paul Ricoeur called a second naivete and this is really what i want to talk about today a second naivete to understand the second naivete we must of course first understand the first naivete the first naivete we all experience in life or on the faith journey is like the naivete of a child it's a lack of sophistication that makes us gullible and apt to believing in fairy tales and unicorns and Santa Claus and things like that. This first naivete is a hallmark of religious fundamentalism. Yes, it is born out of the lack of critical texts and theologies. It just takes everything literally, specifically out of the Bible. Lucy, my almost five-year-old, she turns five in like five days, which is astonishing to me that she's almost five. She's going through, in some ways, the end of this first naivete, in some ways. Once in a while, you know, she'll be watching a movie or we'll be reading a book together and she'll pause and be like, wait, are, are unicorns in my world? <laughs> That's how she asks. She doesn't ask if they're real. Uh, are unicorns in my world or dragons in my world or, or monsters in my world? And I'll be like, no, but don't let that ruin the story for you, kid. <laughs> Don't let it ruin it for you, you know? You're, you're too literal, child. No, I don't really say that part, but um, obviously everybody goes through this time of life, you know, when you come out of childhood, you know, you, you, with regards to unicorns and, you know, dragons and Santa Claus, you leave, you, you exit the first naivete sooner or later, at least in that regard. But some people never go through this in their spiritual journey, do they? They remain like little children, like little children in, in, in this regard their whole life. They may be really sophisticated in every other area, but they continue to read the Bible as if they're not, because let's be honest, it's really scary to change the way that we relate to our religion. By doing so, it can feel like our whole world is crumbling, right? I mean, all of most of you know what that is, that feels like. And here's the other problem that often happens. Many people who only pass through the first naivete and never embrace the second, this often leads to that kind of atheistic fundamentalism I was talking about earlier. These folks who only pass through the first naivete often become rigid 
ardent fundamentalist atheists. This is why Ricoeur believed we must undergo a second naivete in life. The second naivete means passing through the purifying fires of modern knowledge without having one's openness to the spiritual or the metaphysical reduced to ash and dust. In other words, the second naivete isn't a return to the first. It's not to believe or read the Bible again like a child, but it does mean being open to the mystical and the unknown and the possibility of an event in the deepest sense of that term, an event, the possibility of the so-called impossible. It means realizing that our scriptures and our faith traditions are often attempting to describe the indescribable, the ineffable aspects of what it means to be human and to be here and to be conscious. And the way the indescribable and the ineffable is often articulated in our, in our religious traditions is through stories and myths and parables and legends. And if we understand this, and if we have a poetic soul, and I think in order to really engage in faith and spirituality and read these ancient texts, you got to have a poetic soul. Then we'll react, if we have that poetic soul, then we'll react to the myths and the legends and the parables in our sacred texts, not with cynicism, but with mysticism. That's what embracing the second naivete looks like. That's what Recure is getting at. And actually, there's another French philosopher that I want to, that can help us here, that I want to mention. Today's a day for French philosophy, I guess. <laughs> His name was Jean-Luc Marion. I love that name, Jean-Luc, Jean-Luc Picard. Uh, Jean-Luc Marion is known for saying that our uncertainty, our finitude, and our rational limitations are one of the few things we can actually be certain about. In a world where so much is uncertain and fraught with mystery and unknowing and ambiguity, one of the few things we can actually be certain about is our uncertainty and our inability to apprehend reality as it actually is. And because this is the case, we must rethink our definitions of knowledge itself. Our, the concept of knowledge itself must be rethought. Knowledge should not be reduced to a kind of positivism, meaning these things that we can scientifically verify, but rather knowledge can also be negative. In other words, knowledge is comprised of all the immeasurable and subjective experiences we have, including spiritual experiences, which have always been part of the human experience. The fact is we all have experiences every single day that have no identifiable cause or predictable reasons. And yet these experiences constitute a very real form of knowledge. Understanding this is part of what it means to undergo a second naivete. It means not losing one's openness to the, to the utter 
strangeness of life, the utter strangeness of consciousness, the utter strangeness of nature and the universe. For example, I, I think it surprises people, surprises most people, that we don't actually know what anything is. I don't know if you know that. We don't actually know what anything is. Not at the most foundational level of reality, we don't. The fact is, everything is made up of what's called fundamental particles. Quick science lesson here this morning. We've done French philosophy, now we're doing some little bit of science. Everything is made up of what's called fundamental particles, which are the particles that make up atoms which don't have smaller particles to them. I'm talking about things like quarks and what's called bosons and, I don't know, there's another term, gluons. <laughs> These are fundamental particles because there's nothing smaller that makes them up, at least not that we know of. But here's the thing. We don't actually know what these things are. We can describe their, their mass. They can char we, we can describe their charge or their spin. But if you ask, what is mass? What is charge? We don't know. If, if you ask, what, what is actually the innate nature, the, the, the true essence of these particles? What are they really in and of themselves? What are they actually made of? We don't know. Which is to say, we don't actually know what anything is because everything is made of this stuff. You, me, the, the pew you're sitting in, this, this building, we don't actually know what matter, space, and time are. Not at their true essence, not at their most fundamental level. Science is really good, really good at telling us what things do. But not so good at defining them beyond that. It can't define the true essence of things. That's more of a, that's a philosophical question, yes? And one of the most compelling answers out there right now, one of the most exciting answers out there right now that's being trafficked, one shared by a growing number of scientists, is this idea that the intrinsic nature of matter space and time, may be consciousness itself. <laughs> For those of you listening to the, the podcast, I just made my brain explode. And I know that sounds pretty woo-woo and far-fetched, but if you read about this, it's not as far-fetched as it, as it sounds, actually. There's really compelling reasons for this that I won't get into here because it's a rabbit trail, but this is part of what I think it means to undergo a second naivete. Learning to accept the fact that we don't know what anything is, not really. And the universe is profoundly strange and consciousness is profoundly strange and the human experience just being here now thinking about these things. I mean, it's, that's really strange. It's not enough to just pass through the first naivete. One must embrace the second or end up getting stuck and repeating the same mistakes of the first. 
in a sense, to only pass through the first naivete and not embrace the second is to be just as naive as those stuck in the first, but without knowing it. You see, the trick is to know how little you know. The first naivete is about a lack of sophistication. The second naivete is the result of sophistication. The trick is to know how little you, how little you know. That's the second naivete, knowing how little you know and allowing that humility to grant you a sense of profound humility or, or wonder and openness to who knows what. <laughs> to who knows what? I certainly don't, but that's exciting, that's interesting. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is this, and I'll conclude with this. It comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a great book, best book in the Bible, perhaps. Um, chapter 1, verse 18, which says, those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. Those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. Why? Well, there's a few answers. Those who increase, to say those who increase knowledge increase sorrow is to say that the more you know about life and the world, the more you know how little you know. And this can be a sorrowful thing to accept. Knowledge, chasing after knowledge is like chasing after the wind. Chasing after wisdom is like chasing after the wind, the book of Ecclesiastes says. The more you know, the more you know how little you know. And this can be a sorrowful thing to accept, at least at first. Because knowledge is power, yes? Knowledge is comforting. We, we, want, we want to know. We want a sense of control over our lives. Knowledge is security. When we learn how little we really know about ourselves in the world, it's unsettling. But we can lean into this. I believe, and make peace with the truth of our condition. We can learn to respond to uncertainty and mystery, not with fear and anxiety or sorrow, but with awe, wonder, and joy. I think uncertainty can make us joyful. We get to choose how we respond. That's the bottom line. We get to choose how we respond to life as it actually is, uncertainty. We have that power, and that's what it means to undergo a second naivete, which I believe is at the heart of any vital and vibrant spirituality and faith. And here we have maybe a great example of what it means to undergo a second naivete here in this holy sacrament we call communion, which is deeply mystical and which is to say mysterious. Here we find the body and blood of God and this act of receiving it, partaking in it, means that we are somehow, you know, becoming the body of God in the world. This is fraught with mystery and mysticism, right? But to embrace this, to engage in this, is what it means to be a Christian. You know, I think that's a wonderful thing. And so as you receive the Lord's Supper this morning, maybe meditate on some of these ideas and then we'll have a discussion.
the way we do communion here at Central is you're invited forward to just take a, a cup of grape juice and one of the gluten-free crackers and go back to your seat and receive that as Max leads us in song. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. got some time for our discussion or Q&A if anybody wants to engage in that. I like this mic more. I don't know. Um, yeah, any questions about or comments about the second naivete or anything I talked about? Maybe you want to ask a question about my band. I don't know. We stunk, by the way. I've listened to the music recently, and it's terrible. Um, but yeah, and any of you on Zoom obviously can jump in by raising your voice. That's the cool thing about modern tech. But um, yeah, any, any direct questions or indirect uh, about this idea of a second naivete and undergoing this? I'm also curious to hear maybe about your particular journey and how in your quote deconstruction, you still hold space for the spiritual, for whatever you want to call it, the transcendent, the divine, the sacred, you know, how have you been able to navigate that? I'm also curious of hearing, or perhaps, you know, what particular issue did you come into contact with or, or, or you know, I guess, um, what particular issue really did it for you is kind of what I'm also interested in hearing about that brought you to or brought you into deconstruction or maybe into reconstruction as we'll also, you know, can talk about that. But what, what were the issues? I don't know. What's been your journey in this? Anybody want to share? If not, that's okay too. Yeah, Jen. Apparently I just have a lot to say this morning. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I love it. Um, I think what the issue specifically that I thought of when you're talking about second naivete was kind of this i don't know somehow it for me it related to this idea of like the creation of the world and like evolution and kind of um i was obviously raised and taught creationism i never and but and a couple years ago i started watching that tv show cosmos and it was an education for me because I never learned any of that. And I was so shocked and surprised. It, it, like, it was pretty awesome because in my mind, I was like, this is way more interesting than the creation story. <laughs> like, this is way more, so so much more awesome. And when I say awesome, I mean awe-inspiring to understand kind of the beginning of our universe in that way. And to me, 
people are like, oh, well, God created us in this way, but couldn't God have created evolution too? Like, I, I feel like this first naivete that you refer to is so limiting to God. Like we, we think that we are, our beliefs, I feel like in that first process are so limiting to God. Like we're limiting God to creationism and what's in the Bible. And I think this second naivete that you're talking about is being open to the fact that God created evolution and whatever else. That's just a, an example, you know, of, I think how I conceptualize. Yeah, no, thanks. That's, I think that's really good. I, this idea of going through this journey really expands our, as you put it, our understanding of God. It, it, when you when you look back on the God that we grew up, it's kind of a small God, a very capricious being as well, you know, and a very limited being in, in many ways, actually, ironically enough. Um, no, that's really good, Jen. Thank you for sharing that. Um, somebody else want to share? Yeah, Cassandra. Here, I'll, I'll grab it, Jen. There you are. Thank you. Um, I did not grow up in the church, although I did grow up in the Bible Belt. But I. What part of the country again? I forget. Missouri. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Southwest Missouri. So. Mm. Very Is that rural. by Branson? Yes, oh I worked in gosh. Branson one summer. It's like Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of the United States. Yeah. 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 Um, so I can't relate religiously, maybe, but as a parent, becoming yeah. a parent. And having to, you know, take everything that I thought I knew and sort of throw it out the window and start over. And we have two beautiful children that have some developmental differences, and um, there's some mental health issues in our family as well. And um, it's just been amazing, though, letting go of some of those beliefs and relearning things. And then I keep telling people: the older I get, the less I know. Yeah. And um, it's it's just, it's really a neat thing. So that's how I can relate to what you were talking about was just um, that change inside and being able to open up. And, you know, I learn a lot from my kids Mm. and I think we forget that. We think that we're molding them and teaching them, but so often they're teaching us, you know? Um, My daughter's a teenager now and she's very frustrated with some of the things we did when she was younger. And I said, well, we were listening to the professionals. And she said, but I'm the professional of me. Mm. <laughs> I'm the expert on me. And I said, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, that's been an incredible journey. And I can see how um, important this would be also in the church. Mm. Uh, again, growing up in Missouri, there were a lot of very black and white viewpoints and people are positive, they're right. And they're not able to sort of open up and see that second naivety and yeah. understand that we don't know what we thought we knew. Yeah. It's kind of why I wish we had a lot younger politicians. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'd yeah. rather have the Parkland uh, kids, you know, leading our country right now than these very, very old men. <laughs> sure. No, it's, there's something to be said for that. Yeah. Um, thanks, Cassandra. Somebody else want to share their points of view and raise a question? Yeah, Rodney. Ryan, would you pass that to Rodney? Thanks. Let's see if I can articulate all the stuff running through my head. Um, 
I hate to start things off saying the problem is, but that's, you know, <laughs> but the problem with the second naivete is it requires work yeah. and thought and maturity. So you start at a place of religion, it's, it's all based on belief, you know, like and you just believe this, boom. Well, to get to the second naivete, you have to accept that your belief is just a belief and not fact. Mm. And that requires you to think <laughs> about things. And that's an uncomfortable place to be. So it's just easier to accept God, like in Jen's example, God created the world, boom, I'm done. Well, then you watch a show like Cosmos and you're like, well, maybe he didn't, maybe it's this. And that requires work yeah. and thought. And it's an uncomfortable place to be, to admit that my belief isn't rigid. I don't really know. It might be that, but it might not be. And we, I think as humans like the easy way out. Yeah. So it's just easier to say, oh, I believe this and to stay at that second, but that first level of naivete and not graduate, mature, think your way through to the second. Hmm. So I don't, yeah, no, it's really I don't know what the point is, but I guess I'm just saying it's well, the point is it religion takes is hard. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're, I, I, yeah. I hear you saying it takes work. I mean, no. and that's, and it's, and to say it takes work is to say also it's, it's painful because, right. Because we grew up this way, we, you know, we all, those beliefs are a kind of psychological relief for the problems in right. life and death and, they provide that sense of security and knowing and that sense that everything exactly like that i'm safe i'm okay because god's in charge and my beliefs tell me that yeah everything's going to be cool god's and then gonna work it all out yeah and when that idol disintegrates right because of the loss of that first naivete you are left staring into the abyss and right. that's terrifying you got to figure things out you got it and yep. my hope is that the kind the kind of Christianity we articulate here is is this idea of the death and resurrection of God, the death and resurrection of, as in essence, kind of like faith itself. One must undergo a crucifixion in life, that loss of that first naivete, the yep. embrace of uncertainty and unknowing, and the death of our idols in order to be raised to new life in the world where we can live fully as human beings in love and find everything we need in love and compassion and truth and honesty and being itself Got it. that's for me where this is all where this all goes it goes to this this kind of very christian understanding of the death and resurrection of god as a the death and resurrection of a way of being in the world and uh, uh, you know liberated you know yes. into into love we are raised we we die to the, the gods and the idols that oppress us, and we are raised into life, into love, into the being of God, the being of transcendence and all that's good and about life. We're raised into that, and we become a Holy Spirit community. Yep. <laughs> I, that's where all evolved. this, I'm yes. preaching another message here because you inspired me, Rodney. <laughs> but uh, I hope that's what people get here is that message that this is what it, what it means to walk as disciples of, of Jesus of Nazareth is to undergo these, I believe. That's what it means today to undergo it, I think. Um, anyway, but thanks, Rodney. Yeah. Anybody want to react to that or 
have something else they want to say? Dan. I'll, I'll say something. All right. Uh, <laughs> I'm wondering how much of this struggle that we're in today is a product of um, like post scientific enlightenment um, world and the culture that we live in now, because a lot of what you preach in the past and what you just said actually is more reminiscent of like ancient readings and interpretations of the scripture that are more comfortable and accepting of like myth and metaphor and, and, and the symbolism of things. Whereas today it's a lot of our deconstruction and reacting to things is about um, kind of challenging uh, sort of like intellectual certainty. Um, is there something about us in our innately in our brain that wants that certainty or is it more cultural and post-scientific? Like what's the breakdown on that do you think? And you have to give a, a concise response. I want. <laughs> I could. I could only offer my opinion. I want. I want certainty. This I'm is. Look, this is. Yeah. There is answer. no certainty here. This is only Aaron's opinion. But you're really onto something there. First, first of all, I I do think there is something innately about us as you know, like there's a, there's a a drive to survive. You know what I mean? And there's a drive to be secure and comfortable because that aids our survival. And I think you know, um, holding on to, you know, certain, certain ideas helps us do that. Specifically, I think, you know, th this idea of a God who's always going to be there to save the day. And if you just believe the right things, you're going to be taken care of and everything's going to be okay. And your life's going to have meaning and you'll have eternal life. You won't really die. I mean, that feeds into our innate human need for survival, for, for comfort, for meaning, right? We, I think that's innately human. It's not just cultural. But you're right, and and you also raise a really good point that our that the way that specifically religion and Christianity specifically in the West has been approached for the last 300 years since the Enlightenment is it, it is a, is, a, is a reaction against science. It is it is in other words, what we've done is we've taken these these religious traditions and these stories and seeing them through a scientific lens because science is such a threat to, is perceived, not really, perceived as a threat to religion since, you know, the late Middle Ages, since the uh, birth of the scientific revolution. Look how the church treated Galileo in the 17th century when he, when he told them, no, uh, the, the, the earth is not the center of the universe, the sun, we go around the sun, you know, Galileo taught centrism instead of geocentrism and the church freaked out because it saw that oh you're challenging the authority of our scriptures and that's not okay ever since then the reaction in in the modern west to re, to religion has been well we've got to make it into a science it, we have to deal in certitude and and these are scientific truths so, you know reading genesis one through three as jen was talking about as as a science textbook that is a modern approach as a reaction we talked about react being reactionary today. That is a reaction to the enlightenment, to the birth of the scientific revolution and this fear that religion is doomed because religion is seen in the modern West as essentially bad science. That's all it is. It's just bad, it's, it's ancient science. Well, no, that's not what it was. That's not, that's not really what it was at all. Um, so anyway, Dan, I hope that, does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. All right. Cool. Um, anybody else this morning? Yeah, Leanne. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I also just wanted to add 
So in exactly two weeks, I'll be at my brother's wedding and I'll be seeing and speaking to my father for the first time in several years. Um, And I just kind of wanted to like touch upon the cost of not being open to Mm. a second naivete and not being open. Um, My father's not a religious man. He's a very political man, but I think Jesus was also a political figure. I think it's interrelated. And um, I've seen him become radicalized and I don't, I hope I'm alone, but I don't think I am knowing someone like that. I've seen him become extremified and come to the very, very far right through the internet. Um, Where I was a kid, uh, he was anti-war. He was against the Iraq war and he had pacifist alignments and now it's so far to the other side and it's it's like you watch like a mental cocoon it's like a calcification like a crystallization um like a you're building these this like fortress of thought and perception and nothing anyone can say can penetrate it or um divert it or adjust it so i just think I really connect with what Rodney was saying about the difficulty of this process, but I also think it's our responsibility. I think we should, it's, we as educated people and people who have varying amounts of the ability to be open to this, um, I think it's part of our responsibility um, as also people of spirituality and faith because i think the world needs this pretty badly um because i'm not sure what the path forward is for someone like my father i don't know what that looks like i don't know what it is or if it could be so all i can hope is that more people follow what you're talking about because i think it's it's really essential now yeah. And I can tell you that me personally and other people in the room have family like that too and understand entirely what that's like. Um, sorry. I hope it goes okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for sharing that and some of your story and, and those points. Um, all right. Well, we need to conclude. Um, great conversation. And um, just want to remind everybody we've got little a little church picnic after this <laughs> down the street at Fremont Park where Chet kind of dead ends into it about a mile that way. I'm thinking what we'll do because we'll have some kids there is try to find a spot by the playground if that I think there's a playground over there if there is awesome um, and uh, just set up in the shade by the playground and I know Emily and I are getting some takeout from Central Grill but um, you're welcome to join us. You know, um, super casual, but um, thanks for being here, everybody. Thank you to all of you who join us via Zoom and all of you who are listening to this podcast. Thank you, thank you, and uh, go in peace.